The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, good morning, church. Some of you guys know this. I used to teach high school. I never got a round of applause when I went to my classroom. So it was really great to get that from you all today. It's always an encouragement to be here. And I'm really excited to continue our time in Matthew 18. As Chris mentioned, we're working through Matthew this summer. We've been in Matthew 18 for the last couple weeks. And unofficially, this has been kind of like a three-part mini-series through Matthew 18. We heard two weeks ago from Eric about the wanderer or or the lost sheep. We then heard last week from Chris about restoring a brother back to um, restoration for those who have wronged him from here. And we're finishing up this chapter with what it means to forgive one another. And forgiveness is a hot topic in our culture, in our society. And I'm really excited to dive in what it means to be a Christian, forgiving other Christians as well. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Matthew 18, 21 through 35. That's gonna be on page 823 in those black Bibles underneath your chairs. Please open up to the text. I like to keep you honest and flip to a bunch of different texts as well. So get your Bible drill ready for that. As mentioned, we're going to be talking today about forgiveness. There are some things in our world and culture that are taken straight from Christianity and put into society, and forgiveness is one of those things. It shows up in movies, television shows, the news, and other places. How many of y'all heard stories of forgiveness on Instagram and reposted it with, this is the news that we need in our society today? We see it everywhere around us. We teach our little kids to forgive one another and to embrace forgiveness. Recently, though, I was moved by a scene of forgiveness in the wildly popular show, Ted Lasso. For those that are not aware of Ted Lasso, Vanity Fair calls it the nicest show on television, despite the frequent foul language. It has dominated the Emmy Awards over the last few years with 11 wins out of 40 nominations. For those who don't know the show, it follows a humble and charismatic American football coach, meaning real American football, who goes to coach British football or soccer in the Premier League. He was initially hired by the owner to get back at her ex-husband to ruin the team because he had no experience coaching Premier League football. However, the team and the community learned to embrace Ted because of his powerful speeches intense relationships, and genuine care for those around him. The uniqueness of this show is, though, how others watch Ted and emulate his acts of kindness, love, and forgiveness. In the latest and last season, if you've not seen it, sorry, I'm going to give you a little bit of a spoiler, but it's been out for a month, so that's your own fault. Um, Ted forgives his former assistant coach, Nate, who in the previous season had left the team and publicly denounced the team and spoke ill will of Ted and the rest of the club. However, his other assistant coach, the infamous Coach Beard, is unwilling to forgive Nate. Fans of the show know that Coach Beard has often used some pretty unkind words that we cannot use pretty much anywhere in our society to describe Nate. However, Coach Beard is moved by the compassion that Ted has extended to Nate, and he decides to go to Nate's apartment and offer forgiveness. Nate sees Coach Beard showing up to his apartment and immediately is stunned and frightened because this is the last person to be showing up to his apartment. He has no idea what he's going to do to him. 
Coach Beard then begins a monologue that, in my opinion, was one of the best speeches of the show in the three seasons that it ran. He describes his relationship with Ted and says that they met playing college football in America. Fans already know this about the show, but what Coach Beard reveals for the first time is that after college, Ted got married and went into coaching, and Coach Beard got in trouble and went to prison. When he got out, his family and friends all rejected him, and he had nowhere else to go. He then called Ted, and in Coach Beard's words, he took me in, fed me, let me crash on his couch, and in return, I stole his car. I then crashed his car, and the police were about to put me back in prison. However, Ted came down to the police station and convinced the cops that he gave me his car. I stole from my friend, and he chose to forgive me. He gave me a job and a life. So to honor that, he tells Nate, I forgive you. I give you a job, and this whole life part, that's up to you. You see Nate stunned on the show. His mouth is wide open. He's speechless. All he can muster is a simple thank you. And then he says, are you sure you don't want to punch me in the face or something like that? (laughs) Church, if Ted Lasso and Coach Beard can understand and embrace forgiveness, then we need to understand and embrace forgiveness in a way that truly knows why we are in need of forgiveness. We have an incredible opportunity as Christians to be the ones that society looks at and wants to emulate. We can't lose sight that this example is only a small picture of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, and God has chosen to forgive us a debt far bigger than anything our society can think of. We are then called to forgive just as we have been forgiven. That's why I'm calling today's sermon, The Forgiver. I hope you walk out today knowing the following about forgiveness. There's three things. First, forgiveness is powerful. Second, forgiveness is transformative. And third, forgiveness is meant to be shared. Let's go ahead and read our text today before we unpack those points. Let's read from Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Again, it's on page 823 in your Bibles. Verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. 
When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's quickly recap and set the scene for where we have been this chapter in the previous few weeks. We began a few weeks ago, the beginning of chapter 18, with the disciples asking the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus responds in chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The rest of this chapter has illustrated the main idea that God's kingdom, he's not looking for the powerful or the strong. He's looking for a different kind of believer. Remember, Matthew was written to a primarily Jewish audience and who are waiting for the conquering version of the Messiah to come and overthrow the Roman Empire that was oppressing them. Jesus clearly illustrates in this chapter, though, that followers of him are to be the opposite kind of people. The characteristic of a follower of Jesus that this chapter shows us are the following. In verses 1 through 5, we're to be humble like a child. In verses 7 through 9, we're to be serious about rejecting our sin. In verses 10 through 14, we welcome those who return to the faith. In verses 15 through 20, we are called to restore a fellow believer with love and care. And now today, we're supposed to be willing to forgive those who've wronged us. This is not the type of follower that would likely overthrow an empire, but it's a type of follower that Jesus wants in the kingdom of heaven. May this be a reminder that Jesus is not after our gifts, he's after our hearts. With this in mind, we look at verse 21 with the idea of how business is done in the kingdom of heaven and with those inside of it. As Christians, we are obviously called to forgive those who are not Christians outside the kingdom of heaven. But this chapter is primarily focused on how Christians are to act with one another. Keep that context in mind as we unpack these verses today. We initially see in verses 21 through 22 that Peter has some follow-up questions about restoring a brother or sister who has sinned against them. Look back at verse 21 and 22. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my will my brother sin, sorry, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. For context of Jewish custom, it was common to forgive someone three times for the same act. So when Peter approaches Jesus and asks us he should forgive someone seven times, he thinks he's going far above and beyond the custom and the norm. You have to admire Peter for his attempt at being bold and doing more than the expected, like his normal character in the Bible. However, Jesus' response simply says, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Jesus here is not being literal. So I have a please do not go and start a tally mark of all the times that you've forgiven someone. And once you hit 490, you're done. That's not what he's doing here. He's referencing an Old Testament verse, Genesis 4:24, where Lamech, who is an Old Testament character, is given extravagant punishment. Here's a verse on the screen. Genesis 4:24. 
if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 70 times sevenfold. The idea of using this reference is that we, this punishment in Genesis was extravagant. It is something that we could not measure. The punishment is something that could not be forgiven. It's hyperbole then for Jesus to say 70 times seven. And what he's essentially telling us is that there is no limit to forgiveness. If a fellow Christian has expressed genuine repentance, then we are to forgive. This would have been very countercultural to what the Jewish leaders were telling people that only three times is the norm. Church, our willingness to forgive should be as limitless as God's willingness to forgive us. Now, does this mean that we let the same person harm us again and again and then tritely say, sorry? It's not what was happening here. Chris preached a few weeks ago about forgiveness and what it means to be wise and set boundaries and not to allow people to harm or take advantage. Forgiveness also typically implies two parties engaging with one side seeking forgiveness and one side forgiving. Let's get, let me give you an example here. In our home, we have three little children. We are currently working with our toddler on how to seek forgiveness and apologize to his siblings. And in case you are not aware, toddlers are really bad at forgiving others. He will often push his brother, chuck a car in his face. And when this happens, my wife and I, we issue a consequence. We help him ask for forgiveness. And then we attempt at him to go say sorry to his brother. And it sounds nice in theory, but what usually happens is that our toddler responds with yes to any question to get him out of trouble. He runs and gives our one-year-old a hug and says a version of sorry that's pretty inaudible. And then 30 seconds later, he chucks his car at him again. <laughs> However, we're establishing this process with him, and we know that it's developmentally appropriate for a two-year-old to kind of go through this process. We are hoping that this model will be instilled in him as he gets older, and any other day, without our prompting, he chucked a car, he went over, and knew he had to immediately give his brother a hug to apologize. So I think it's hopefully working. We'll see. But for Christians that are older than two, and that would be everyone in this room, we need to view forgiveness a little bit differently. As believers, we need to be willing to forgive when a fellow Christian brother has wronged us and is seeking forgiveness. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't establish boundaries or reestablish what that relationship should look like, but our general position to be, it needs to be to extend forgiveness. There are moments where we need to be careful about whether believers is taking advantage and asking for forgiveness in not a genuine way, but I'd argue that's the exception and not the norm. We need to extend wisdom here, but I don't think we have a problem with our culture of being too forgiving. We have a culture of grudges, and holding our fists closed to forgiveness. Let's therefore think of how we can begin to open our closed fists and allow forgiveness to occur. So you can imagine Jesus telling this to his disciples and you see them there, they're stunned. That much forgiveness? Who could offer such a thing? So just like any good teacher, Jesus gives us a story. Let's take a look at the story in verses 23. Verse 23 in our text. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, 
have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. Jesus shares his story of a servant who is forgiven an incredible debt. To put these numbers in perspective, one commentator wrote that 10,000 talents combines the largest Greek numeral with the largest unit of currency. Even one talent was a small fortune. 10,000 talents was beyond the wildest dreams of ordinary people. 100 denarii, which we'll talk about a little bit later, is not a negligible amount. It's about 100 days wages, but it is a mere 600 thousandths of the first sum. A talent, again, would have been a small fortune. Scholars have concluded that this amount would have been equivalent to about the wages for one person for 160,000 years. As far as I know, no one is planning on living to be 160,000 years old. So this is far more money than you could make in your lifetime in a whole millennia of time. It's an amount that had been larger than the GDP of all the Roman Empire at the time. The original Greek word emphasized that's a myriad of talents, meaning that's a number that we can't really fathom. But just for fun, the average Colorado salary, does anyone want to guess the average Colorado salary for the ages of 28 to 38? Shout out a number. Wow, we're actually pretty close. It is $55,943. If we did that number times 160,000, we would get this number, and it's on this slide. It's about $9 billion, just below that. Who wants $9 billion? Anyone? No? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't be shy. You can ask for that. So You may not get it, but you can ask. Um, now, a denarius was one day's wages, and 100 denarii was not a small amount of money. But here is our car calculations for us. So here's the number for the next one about $15,000. Again, I would love $15,000. If you have that, just write me a check. You can do that. That'd be great. But it's nothing compared to $8.9 billion. Again, these numbers are not perfect. They don't take account of inflation and all that jazz and the things that you can learn from Eric about financial things. But I think it's helpful to get the perspective of what the difference is here. Here's the key point that Jesus is trying to make. The servant in this story has a debt that he had no way of paying back. It was far bigger than anything we could ever imagine. The numbers here are meant to show us and to cause them to think this is an unfathomable amount. Essentially, then, when he's begging for forgiveness and for his debt to be forgiven— The king knows there's absolutely no way, there's nothing he could do to forgive that debt. Now, if you're like me, I started wondering, how did this person get into this kind of debt? What would it look like for a man to start in that process of getting almost $9 billion of debt? I imagine it started small. Maybe just a small loan, just $1,000 from the king. Then maybe a little bit more maybe $5,000 from a friend. Then maybe a little bit more, $20,000. It would grow and grow and grow until it was an amount that is unthinkable. It grew until a point where he couldn't hide it anymore. How do you hide $9 billion? It was everywhere and it affected his whole life. 
It spilled over into his marriage, to his family. It showed up into his workplace. It showed up in his community. It must have consumed him. It must have been all that he thought about. I imagine it kept him up at night. Church, before we begin to deceive ourselves and think that this man isn't us, and we would never get into this position, I'm here to tell you that this man is all of us. That debt is the same that we have before God. The debt that this man has is an illustration of how much we owe to God in terms of our sin. It's an unfathomable amount that no amount of good deeds could ever repay. Our society may want you to believe that you are a good person and that your sin isn't that bad and that for the most part, we are good people. I mean, you're probably thinking to yourself, I've never murdered anyone, Justin. Come on, I'm a good person. I pay my taxes, mostly. <laughs> I give to charity. I haven't cheated on my wife. I don't hate my neighbor that much. I'm mostly a good person. However, the Bible is clear. We are not, by nature, good people. Take a look at these two verses on the screen. First, Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. And the next one, Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The reality is that all of us in this room need a savior desperately. Left to ourselves, we deserve eternal separation from God and have a debt that nothing can be done to pay it. We have to grasp the reality of our sin before we can even talk about forgiveness. Because if we undervalue our sin, then we can't understand the weight of God's forgiveness that he's extended to us. Many Christians in our country are underestimating the heaviness and seriousness of sin in our lives. In a regular survey performed by Ligonier Ministries called the State of Theology, a group of Americans are asked either to agree or disagree about statements surrounding God and theology. It's been tracked over the last eight to 10 years, and the most recent results came out in 2022. So this is pretty current information. There's two questions in this survey that directly talk about our passage today and how people either agree or disagree with the statements. The first statement is even the small sin deserves eternal damnation. They polled 3,011 U.S. adults across different demographics, and 69% of adults either disagreed or strongly disagreed with that statement. Now, if we filter it down to the most exclusive settings that connect us to church, those who say that they're evangelical Christians who actually participate in a church, of that 3,011, we get 377 respondents. So again, these are the cream of the crop, evangelicals, those who participate in church. Of those 377, about 40% were either strongly disagree or disagree to the statement, even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation, about 40%. For statement number two, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. For the U.S. population, about 28% of people either disagreed or strongly disagreed with that, or sorry, 68% of people either disagreed or strongly disagreed with that statement. For our, our Christian group, 
about 44% disagreed with that statement or strongly disagreed with that statement. Church, we have to take our sins seriously and understand the position that we were in. We all deserve death and eternal separation from God. And even our smallest sins cannot be made up. We are not good people by nature. We are broken people who desperately need a savior. Once we understand this, then we can fully believe this first point that I'm going to make. And this is it. Forgiveness is powerful because our sin was so great. Again, forgiveness is powerful because our sin was so great. If we see the horrible shape that we were in, it makes absolutely no sense why God would forgive us our debt. He is the king in this story, and he looks at our debt and simply says, I forgive you. I release you from your debt. Romans 5, 6 through 8 is on the screen, and it says, for while, we were, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a picture of the gospel. Tim Keller also stated this point eloquently where he said, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. It's a both and here. Church, do you believe this? Have you believed this for yourself? If you haven't believed this yet, then this is the first thing that I ask you to do. Feel free to ignore everything else I have to say. You need to surrender your life to Christ because you have a debt that you cannot pay. And there is a savior who will gladly excuse that debt like the servant in this story. It doesn't matter what you have done or what you haven't done. I beg you today to surrender your life to Christ. For those that have given your life to Christ, do you remember either that moment or this season where it occurred? What did it feel like? What do you think it would have been like to be this man who walked away a free man who got rid of his billions and billions and billions of debt? How much more to know that we've been separated, that we had been separate, spared from eternal separation from God and he has asked us to be in perfect union with him. What feelings could you imagine someone feeling? What did you feel in that moment? I imagine, just like I had, I was overjoyed. Maybe you were elated. Maybe you're ecstatic. Maybe you're speechless. You'd want to tell everyone that you know. You would run around the room shouting at the top of your lungs. You may be crying or weeping. Maybe you're smiling or hugging. You see, church, the forgiveness that God has given to us is powerful. And it's supposed to cause deep and moving change in our lives. Which leads me to my second point, that forgiveness is meant to be a transformative experience in all of us. 
Let's go back to our text and see how our servant responded to being forgiven this massive debt. Jump back to verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. If we take a look at verses 29, it almost identically mirrors verse 26. Have patience with me and I will pay you. You would imagine that some type of deja vu would go off with a servant whose debt was forgiven and be like, oh yeah, I was forgiven a debt that I couldn't pay back. My life was forever changed. I was in that position. I should forgive you too. But what we see in this servant is he went out and sought revenge and payment. Some translations begin verse 28 with immediately the servant went out. He had no time to waste to call on his debts from people he loaned money to. He thought he could collect on his debts and gather more money and enjoy the hundred denarii for himself. When the second servant couldn't pay, though, the first servant doesn't extend grace but executes judgment to even a harsher degree and throws him into debtor's prison where he would have no opportunity to pay back his sum. Essentially a lifelong sentence. How do we feel about our servant now? If you're like me, there's a lot of feelings I got when I was reading this about what he had just received. I was feeling a bit angry, frustrated, confused, Maybe you, like me, were shouting either out loud or internally, how could he do such a thing? He's not even the king. He's a servant executing judgment over a fellow servant. Are you kidding me? He thinks he's big and bad and can do whatever he wants and throw him in jail. What a hypocrite. What an ungrateful human. But church, I have to ask you, Aren't we like this at times? Walking around with grudges and our fists closed and angry over the wrong that has been done to us. If we've been saved by God, then we all have had our debts forgiven. Yet we walk around executing judgment. You see, God has chosen to forgive us, but he didn't want us to stop there. He intended for us to be transformed. We expect the man here to give forgiveness to his fellow servant. You see the people there in this context. In verse 31, the other servants saw this and were greatly distressed. They understood the situation this man was in and knew that he wasn't truly changed by the debt that he was forgiven. He wasn't impacted by by their forgiveness and he wasn't truly repentant. He was no different. What is the impact if we live like this man? What would the world think of us if we act the same way as we were before Christ and after Christ? Now, this doesn't mean that there won't be seasons where we have been at low points and doubting our faith or in a really tough spot. 
it was talked about last week with Chris that all Christians wander. It doesn't mean that we need to live that we need to live every day as if it was the first day that we were saved. But I do want to push you and push each of us here today to never forget and to allow God to change us each and every day. That is the beauty and challenge of dying to ourselves and surrendering to him and to see him new each and every day. Second Corinthians 5, 17 says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. If you've read this classic Christian novel, Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, Christian, is on a way to relieve, uh, to relieve himself of his giant burden that he carries. It weighs on him and is unbearable. It causes him to have unspeakable pain and is constant in his life. He's looking for relief and salvation, and he seeks out in so many places. Eventually, we see Christian begin to ascend the hill, and he looks upon the cross, and this is what it says in the book. At the top of the hill stood a cross, and a little below the bottom was a stone tomb. In my my dream, just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosened from his shoulders and fell off his back. He was a new creation. His burden was gone. He was transformed. Church, each of us today that have given our life to Christ are also that new creation. Our burdens are gone. We have been transformed. We are called to live like it and not to be like this servant who didn't understand forgiveness. We are called to be different and to be a community of believers that really believe that our lives have forever been changed. Our transformation should be evident in every area of our life and especially when it comes to forgiveness. What would it look like if we embrace this idea, especially in our churches? Remember, this passage is primarily focused on Christians forgiving one another. If we believe that we truly are transformed because of the forgiveness of God, that he is graciously extended to us, then we ought to be a people that look very different to the outside world. Which brings it to my final point, that forgiveness is meant to be shared. Let's finish this text and jump back into verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Again, the story concludes, the master summons the servant and states clearly that how he acted was wicked and wrong. He then delivers the servant to the jailers, or some translations have tormentors, until he should pay his debt. This is meant to be a stark warning for us today. It is meant to show that God is serious about our need to forgive others, and we are called to share and partake in forgiveness or the warning in verse 35 is relevant to us. This warning was shared with us previously after the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, where Jesus says in Matthew 6, 14 through 15, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Initially, this may sound harsh, a harsh warning, but think of what it implies. If we refuse to forgive a fellow Christian who is truly repentant seeking forgiveness from us over a small debt that we can truly say, or if we refuse to forgive a brother, can we truly say that we understand what God has done to forgive us? This again goes back to the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. There may be times where in order to reconcile that we may need to cut off relationship, set clear boundaries, or leave a situation. However, we are called to forgive. We are meant to be transformed. And it's implied here that we will share this forgiveness with others. Is this a hard thing? Absolutely. This is probably one of the hardest things to do is to forgive and sacrifice something in return. Forgiveness implies that there is a cost to be absorbed and it's not easy to do. R.T. Kendall says, the ultimate proof of total forgiveness takes place when we sincerely petition the Father to let those who have hurt us off the hook, even if they have hurt not only us, but also those close to us. God isn't asking us to forgive. He's commanding us to do it. It's an act of true love and restoration. It isn't easy, but we as Christians are called to do it. Henry Nouwen said, forgiveness is the name of love practice among people who love poorly. The hard truth is that all people, including us here today, love poorly. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour, and every moment. This is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak that is the human family. This forgiveness will require us to seek Christian restoration like we talked about last week. It looks like celebrating a lost brother or sister who returns to the flock as mentioned two weeks ago. Our community needs to be one where we are quick to forgive because of the forgiveness that we have all been extended. This is why I wanted Romans 13, eight through 10 read over us. And I'll put it up here again. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. What would it look like if Fathom Church was known for only having a debt of loving one another? So fiercely and so intensely that it requires radical forgiveness to each other. Left to ourselves, church, we're really bad at this. And that is why God showed us first how to forgive in a magnificent and powerful way a way that causes us to be transformed from the inside out. And that is why we need to ask God to change our hearts moment by moment so that we can share this graciously with others. So as we begin to conclude today, I want you to think through the last few weeks that we've been in Matthew 18. We have talked about having childlike faith all the way to forgiving one another due to the amount of grace that we have received. 
It's been a pretty intense few weeks as we process how we are called to live as members of God's kingdom. Many of us I know today are in a variety of places. First, for some of you here today, you may not know the debt that you are in, or you know how much debt that you have in regards to your sin. If you're either of these people today, the first thing that I ask you to do is realize that there is nothing that you can do that will eliminate you from God, and there is nothing that you can do to resolve your debt. You need a savior today. Turn to him so you can walk free. For others, there's a few of us here today who we know that we've been forgiven by God and we're a believer, but we still struggle with the realization that God has saved you and loves you and sees you as perfect in his eyes. You beat yourself up over your sin and the weight of it all and are striving to be perfect and to live a good life. I ask today that you remember that God doesn't require anything of you. You are his beloved. Next, there are some here today who are the servant who is unwilling to forgive. I don't know the full extent of the pain and the hurt that you have experienced in your life that someone or something may have caused you. We all carry wounds and burdens that weigh us down. But I know that there's some in here And I know that there's some in here who have been marred by words and actions from people and individuals, and some who even call themselves Christians. I ask that you use this next time of reflection to cry out to God to soften your heart, to whomever or whatever has happened to you. Let him be the one to take the pain from you. He already has on the cross. I'm not asking you today to jump back into unsafe situations or to be unwise but I am asking you today to seek forgiveness and to follow restoration. It is hard and scary, but I know that God has called us to it and he'll be faithful to us if we seek it out. Only God can change our hearts and we are called to surrender to him today. May we be a people and a congregation that seeks out forgiveness and have a reputation of love and forgiveness to one another. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we just wrestle with this idea of forgiveness and what you have called to us to do, this hard, it's scary. And there's a lot of us here today who are struggling under the amount of debt that we owe to you in our sin. And I pray that you'll just allow those people today to know that there's nothing that will separate them from, the, from your love and that they can cry out to you today. I also know there's people here today who are holding on to some person or thing they're unwilling to forgive. And I pray, Lord, that during this next time, you'll bring that to people's attention, to their mind, and that you'll allow their heart to be softened. And I pray that they will go through the necessary steps of forgiveness and restoration. And it's hard, Lord, but you are faithful and you have called us to it and you have forgiven us a debt that we can never pay back. So I pray that you'll give people the courage and the strength and that we will do this out of the extending of the love that you have shown for us. So as we enter this time of reflection, work on our hearts. May your spirit be here to empower us and to convict us and to bring out anything for us. In your son's name, amen.